This is the Authentic Entrepreneurs Podcast with your host, Nick Foley and Stu Saunders. Here we go. Here we go. This is what I got to say. What song is that? This song, Nick, is Good Times by In Excess and Jimmy Barnes. I, you know what, I, I, I want to apologize for our listeners from 45 to 60 because I should probably know In Excess. I like In Excess. In Excess is the name. In Excess. That's not what you said. What'd I say? In Excess. In Excess, In Excess. But you potato, said potato, man. In Insects. 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 In Excess. In Excess. This uh, is from the movie, um, um, the one with the Lost Boys. Really? 1987 classic. Mikey, you know, you're a whore guy. Lost Boys. Um, hey, welcome to the show. I'm Stu Saunders. My name is Nick Foley. And today we have a very special episode. We are going to be uh, spending our time with the very wonderful and amazing Laura Gaston, Ot- Laura Gaston Otting, um, who I always mess up her name. She's lovely. She's wonderful. Not sure how to read. No. Yeah. No, she is a fantastic entrepreneur and has uh, provided us, is going to provide us with some amazing insight in the next uh, yeah. little while here. And so Laura is the, um, let's do a little bit of a, uh, a bit of a bio on her, a little bio for you, just so you know who she is. Um, Laura is the best-selling author and motivational speaker. She inspires people to push past the doubt and indecision that keep great ideas in limbo because her presentations make listeners think bigger and accept greater challenges that reach beyond their limited scope of belief. Delivering strategic thinking, well-honed wisdom, and perspective generated by decades of navigating change across the startup, nonprofit, political, as well as philanthropic landscapes, Laura will deliver uh, a special voice to generate confidence and needed to tackle larger-than-life challenges. Um, she has been an entrepreneur uh, 25 years ago, started as a presidential appointee at Bill Clinton's White House. She helped shape AmeriCorps. Um, she worked for some of the biggest nonprofit hedge, uh, sorry, headhunting organizations in the world. Started her own company, which she sold, um, and now she is, of course, the best-selling author of Limitless. And she is way smarter than Stu Saunders and yeah. Foley. And she's spoken across the world. Um, she's doing incredible things, and we're super pumped today to have Laura with us um, and share some of that wisdom about being limitless, some of her journey, very relatable to many people. So. Um, without further ado, please enjoy, enjoy our wine. Ra- oh my gosh! Wide ranging, wide ranging, and entertaining and informative. Deep diving, deep diving, uh, as we call her LGO, um, and she calls herself that too. So uh, Laura Gasser, Laura Otting. Gasser Otting. So please uh, enjoy the show. We'll be back. We'll be right back after the show to kind of summarize it all up. Here's Laura. <laughs> All right, as we said, we are so excited to have Laura Gaster Otting here, who is the author of Limitless, the best selling book, which um, is, you know, it's already, it's making waves, Laura. It's making waves. Um, and I, I have been excited to have this. We reached out before, I think, to do it, but it didn't work out. But I'm super excited to have you here today uh, with us, with Nick and I um, on The Authentic Entrepreneurs. And first and foremost, thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and I, 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 had a, I spent some time, um, you know, I know you through the same group that we're part of. Um, we're all part of this, this big group of amazing speakers. Um, some of us more amazing than others. I'm looking directly at you now as I say that. <laughs> um, but I'm super excited to, to talk to you about kind of your journey. Um, and I wanted to kind of start from way back in the beginning, because if you don't know this, 
um, what Nick and I do a lot of the time is work with young people. And um, so I wanted to kind of go way back to say, I don't know, ninth grade, freshman year of high school. What did Laura want to do? What was Laura's big dream when she was starting out her high school journey? What did you want to do in ninth grade, 10th grade? What was your dream? What did you, want, what did you think you were going to do? What did you want to do? I was going to be the first female senator from the great state of Florida. Okay. And? And I uh, thought that the way to get there was law school, the right. law, because everybody who was an elect. Oh, no, Mikey. So I created educational path that put me into law school. Because I wanted to solve all the problems. I wanted to fix the world. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to, like, I was an unrepentant idealist, and I wanted to, like, do the big things. And I got myself to law school. I was, uh, I graduated early from high school, and I graduated early from college. So I was 20. I was sitting in law school, and I looked around the first day, and I was like, oh, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> I don't belong here. These are not my people. I do not want to be a lawyer. I just, it was awful. And so I did what most 20 year olds do when they've made really bad life decisions. I dated a really terrible guy. <laughs> and this terrible guy had really good taste in precisely two things. The first, obviously, you know, being girlfriends. Right. But the second was uh, uh, unknown presidential candidates from really small, really small southern towns or really small southern uh, states. And I used to ride my bike to campus. And he said to me one day when it was raining, "I'll give you a ride. Um, I'll give you a ride home. I'll you know throw your bike in the back of my IROC Z." <laughs> <laughs> kind of guy he was. Wow. Um, and but I want to stop by this guy's office, local office. He's running for president. And I was like. Governor who, from where, like not a chance, Arkansas, not a chance, not going to happen. And so, you know, back in the day, kids, you had to actually like go to a physical office and get yeah. a piece of paper that had like the, the candidates yeah. um, issue uh, statements on them. You, there was no internet. So I walked into this tiny little office and there in the corner of the room was a little black and white TV with then Governor Bill Clinton talking about the idea that there's nothing that's wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And he, he put out there this impassioned plea for this program of national service, of community service in exchange for college tuition, where you could change the world while you're changing yourself. And I suddenly went from the nine-year-old version of me, the ninth-grade version of me, I'm going to help, I'm going to solve all the problems, to that needs to happen. Right, so I suddenly stopped asking myself, how can I help? How can I be the difference maker? How can I be the solution and define the problem by what I saw that I was capable of giving to what actually needs to happen for this bigger thing to become reality? And once I was able to do that, I was able to find the right place for myself vis-a-vis -vis the solution. Right, so I want to actually, I want to dive farther back because I know that you come from a household of you know, one parent's Republican, one one parent identified Democrat. Um, so how do you, how in ninth grade at 14 years of age, do you decide that you want to get into politics? Like what, what happened in eighth grade? What happened in seventh grade? Like I, I, in seventh grade, I was just excited about having brand new shoes. Like I had new Pumas, right? That, that's what I was excited about. And you're thinking about being in politics in eighth grade. How, how do you get to that? Was it your parents? Was it, was it like something you'd seen or influenced by? 
Yeah, I think it was a combination of factors. Um, You know, this was back in the day where you'd watch the six o'clock news at night during dinner and it wasn't like sensational 24 hour news. It was like there were soap offers on and then the news would come on and after the news you'd get, you know, like the evening sitcoms like it. It wasn't 24 seven. So if you wanted to watch the news, you'd watch it at 6 p.m. And you watch the the local news at 6 p.m. and then the national news at 7 p.m. And so we'd watch it during dinner. And at the end of the news, the, the anchors would do like an op-ed. They would, you know, talk about some local issue, whether it was a zoning issue or cafeteria food or, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the speed of the, the boats in the Biscayne Bay or like whatever the issue was. Or maybe it was a national thing, but they would give like a, a three or five minute op-ed about how what their opinions were on, on an issue. And then we would turn off the TV and we would talk about it at the dinner table. And I came from a family, as, as you mentioned, where my mother was a Democrat, my father was a Republican. They probably agreed on about 80 percent of, of everything, but it was more a question of do they prioritize social issues or financial issues first. And so we would talk about it and you had to have an opinion. It couldn't just be, I don't know, like I don't know yeah. wasn't an OK answer. You actually had an, had an opinion and have thought about it. It was also during the time of the Iran uh, hostage crisis. So, you know, there were uh, I don't even remember the number of of Americans who were in Iran. The Shah, um, uh, the Ayatollah was was keeping them hostage and Jimmy Carter was trying to negotiate it at the same time as dealing with, you know, the super long um, gas lines. And so we were in this terrible recession in the United States. And I just remember for whatever reason being sold a bill of goods when I was growing up that like And I just found it, I was righteously indignant about the fact that if we were the greatest country in the world, why couldn't we free our own people? Like, wh- why was this happening? And we were also doing, you know, nuclear bomb drills under the table. We were watching, you know, the day after and things like that. So I, I think I had um, a couple civics teachers in a row that were like, you know, um, super duper pinko commie hippies or something and they were just really um they 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 were they were socially social justice oriented before you know social justice was like a a regular thing that we talked about in school and you also have to remember that at the time entrepreneurship didn't really exist you know i mean people had family businesses but people didn't think oh i'm going to start the next dot-com company in my in my dorm room the leaders were the professionals they were doctors they were lawyers they were accountants um maybe they were teachers um so there were like professions and then there were like and you could be a ceo and you'd be a leader or the leaders were elected officials and so i just didn't have a head for numbers and so i figured i wasn't going to be a ceo of a company so the other way to be a leader was elected office and so i i think i spent the majority of my youth thinking that leaders were the people that were center stage in front elected bold-faced names and it really wasn't until ironically i was working in the white house that i realized that there are so many other ways to be a leader whether it's um from stage left stage right behind the scenes people can lead from the front they can right. lead from the back and there's so many different versions of that and it, it, interesting enough through that found my way away from politics and into entrepreneurship Right. They always say there's a great quote that says, if you can breathe, you can lead. And I think that's really a great quote. I just want to ask you a quick question. You said that you, after you would watch these op-eds on the, the local news, the six o'clock news, you, your family would talk about it. You would talk about whatever the issue was. Um, do you think that's something that's lost in 2019? Do you think families get together and have conversations like that and talk about politics and 
the state of social life of, as an American, as a, as a citizen of the world? Does that happen? Do you do that with your kids? I mean, I do it with my kids because I'm, I'm a democracy nerd. I mean, I've long told my children that they can be anything they want to be in the world, but they can't be non-voters. Like, literally, if they do not vote, and I don't even just mean for president. I mean for, like, dog catcher. Like, <laughs> I, they have to vote for everything. If they're non-voters, they, if, they, if, they don't, if they don't vote in November, they don't get to come home for Thanksgiving. Like, that's just my rule. I love it. Because, and, and I honestly believe that the person who you vote for for, um, for mayor has much more effect on your life than the person who you're voting for, to, for for the head of your country. Unless you have a child or unless you yourself are an active-duty military, the person who you're voting for for school committee is going to have more effect on your life, even if you don't have kids because they're helping to figure out the budget and the taxes. They're going to have much more effect on your daily life than, than the person you're running for, that, that you're uh, voting for for prime minister or president. And I think that it's so important to vote in the primaries because the primaries are your opportunity to send a message to yeah. the parties about the kinds of candidates you want to see them run more of, right? So it's not just, you know, um, what does Mitch Joel say? Uh, pale, stale, and male, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you want to see lots of other kinds of candidates. You got to get behind them early and help give them a voice so that there's more diversity in the opinions, about in the identities, and the race, and the sex. But I have these conversations with my kids, and, and I do because I, I mean, Look, I'm raising two white males that are going to be, you know, on on the on the on the north side of privilege for their entire lives and I feel very strongly that it is my responsibility if I am raising individuals who will have privilege or passing privilege that they need to actually be active members of this democracy. I don't know that people do it, and I'm, I can't tell you the numbers about whether or not it's something that's being lost on a regular basis. What I can tell you is we don't have civics education in our schools in the way that we used to, and we don't have people who vote in the way that we used to because they don't think that it matters. And I think it always matters. You know, if if what's that quote? If you're not if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Yeah. So I say we got to get to the table. I think that we, I don't want to get into a politics conversation, but I think the next in 2020 for your country, we're Canadian, obviously, Nick and I, but it is going to be the most um, interesting and the most um, impactful election that your country will have experienced in its since, since well, I don't know for a long time. I think it's yeah. I mean, I think I think regardless of what side of the political aisle you're on, the 2016 election in our country forced people to come to terms with what they believe in and what they value and what they're what hills they're willing to die on. And I think that we've seen a lot more young people get involved. You know, there's something like um, there's something a million uh, uh, members of the NRA in this country, but five million young people turn 18 every year, right? I mean, those are voting blocks. So, yeah. you know, I, I always I come from a school of thought of always bet on youth, right? I mean, I think that the young people are the ones who are going to save this the, the world. My 17 year old says to me, "Look, I'm going to be able to vote in the next presidential election, and that's good because you guys are screwing up the environment, and yeah. we got to fix this." Like you're screwing up my environment at this point, and so I, 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 I want to have those conversations with young people, and also I think we have to because they see the world in such a different way 
than we see it. You know, we see it only based on 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 the the fears that we have right now about the issues that are most pressing to us. But they see so much more, and their ideas of what's possible are so much greater. You know, when I ended up in the White House, people say to me like, "Well, how? Like, how, what have you failed?" And I always say like, "We didn't think we could. We were so young and idealistic that we just assumed that success. Like, we it was a good idea. Why wouldn't everybody want to do this? Like, we we didn't even think failure was a possibility." I think it's interesting your book being limitless and you're talking about young people and the fact that you look at like those kids I'm trying to think oh my gosh the school that, that one of the many schools you unfortunately have mass shootings um, what's the big one in this the big one, one recently the kids just rose up was it in Parkland, Parkland sorry oh, thank Parkland. You, at Parkland look at those kids at Parkland who just they feel limitless they feel like they can do anything they feel like they have all the power in the world to try to change things and I think yes. there's something that's lost between the age of 14 and 24 um, where you just kind of something gets eroded from within your your just your foundation of who you are, where yet limitless kind of disappears. You don't feel limitless. Yeah, it's so true. I was I was just sitting at my niece's high school graduation in Dallas a couple weeks ago, and and the the head of school and the vice principal and the the the, the speakers were all saying things like the world is your oyster and your life is full of promise and there's so much wonderment that awaits and isn't it great you can do anything, and I sat there thinking. Isn't this interesting that we give the same convocation, we give the same speeches to graduations for high school and college all the time, mm-hmm. but then we don't get them anymore, right? right. And then suddenly we, we're, we're, we're 20 and 25 and 30 and 35, and nobody's telling us, the world is your oyster. You can do anything. No. It's all about promise. And I think that if we got that lecture once every, you know, if we got the lecture once every four or five years, I think we take more chances. I think we do bigger things. I mean, I think it's why we see the, the, the graduation speeches go viral. You know, there's always like one of the year, like either right. whether it's Abby Wambach or Steve Jobs or whoever, where everyone's like, oh, you got to listen to Jim Carrey. It's incredible. But I think it's because we're all looking for hope. We're all looking for this message that we can be limitless. Like the world is our oyster. Like until you're dead in the ground, until there's no more breath in your body, failure is not finale. It's just fulcrum. It's this place from which you can grow and you can change and you can do new and interesting and exciting things. And I just, I think that we could take a lesson from our youth in that way. I agree. I'm I'm curious, Laura, like you were... In, in the White House between the ages of, you know, 20 and, and, and 25, like, you know what I mean? You're in the White House. So what are some of the leadership qualities you learned from the White House that you were able to apply to your entrepreneurship do, uh, like journey? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> so the very first uh, lesson I got on the very first day, so I, I was a I was a volunteer and I um, was called in. I said, I want to either work in political affairs, national service or the first lady's office. Like those are the things I was most interested in. And a friend of mine I met on the campaign trail happened to be the person who organized all the volunteers. So we all you know went to the inauguration and then at 1201, he's like, come on in. And I went to go uh, to political affairs, and the head of political affairs uh, was a, a really like rough and tumble type of you know backroom brawler politician. And I sat down at the desk. You know, I'm 21 at this point. I'm sitting down at the desk, and I'm sitting in front of this enormous phone system, right? It's got like a 15 billion buttons on it. And the phone rings, and I'm like, "Hello, political affairs. May I help you?" 
and it's the guy's mom. <laughs> and I'm looking at the phone and I'm thinking, oh my God, what do I do? I can't hang up the phone on his mom. I'm going to get fired, right? So I put the phone down like very gingerly next to the cradle so she doesn't hear it click on the desk. And I tiptoe into his office and I'm like, hello, sir. Um, your mom is on line one. Now he's sitting at his desk with his feet up and um, he's flipping through the clips, which are like the old fashioned like Xerox copy of yeah. the news articles. And he's like, oh, tell her I'm really busy. Okay, so I tipped her. Uh, I'll have to have him call you back, and I hang up the phone. And I went home that day, and I called my friend, and I said, I will go back to law school. I will not work for someone like that. I mean, the fact, like, I would have been like, Mom, I'm in the White House. Oh, my God, it's amazing. But the fact that he needed to show even his mother how important he was told me a lot about character. The next day I get called in and I get to go to national service. And I spent six weeks at national service, you know, doing data entry, like the peon of peon jobs, until one day the guy who runs the office comes up to me and he's like, hi, um, I've been seeing you here. You, you seem like you're working really hard. I've got a project if you're interested. Oh, by the way, my name is Eli Siegel. And he puts his hand up to shake my hand. Like, <laughs> of course I know who the guy is, right. right? Like he ran the 1992 campaign. He's a political genius. Yeah. He's the nicest guy on earth. But he put his hand out to shake my hand and introduce himself. And the difference between those two people taught me so much about leadership that it's not about assuming that you're most that, that important, that everybody has to know you and that you have to continue to tell them how important you are every day. But it's just you know, show up, shut up, do the work, yeah. be a good human being and treat everybody as if they are good human beings too. And that comes back to, that, that just comes back in spades to you. Why, why do you think he noticed you? Or why, um, did he, why, did he, why did he come to you? I'm just curious, was, were, you, were you doing extra? Were you doing more? I was probably on the pathway out the door. <laughs> My <laughs> desk was probably sitting there. You know, I, I got very lucky. There were a lot of like young and hungries, as, as, I, as I called us. Um, and I think I, was on, I think I was on the pathway out the door. Um, but I will tell you, I, I made a lot of that opportunity. So um, here's another lesson in, in leadership. I, he said, I've got, a, I've got a project I wonder if you could help me with. I have a question. It occurs to me that John F. Kennedy introduced the Peace Corps and it was successful from the very first moment he announced it. And Lyndon Johnson introduced the War on Poverty and it was a failure from before it even started. And I wonder if you could go tell me why that was. You know, <laughs> small task. Yeah. Okay. No, no internet. Like, <laughs> yeah, no internet, right? I'm like, oh, okay. So I pack all my Google stuff in my backpack and I start walking out the door to go to the, um, to go to the, uh, uh, Library of Congress, you know, so I can like go through the card catalog, yeah, <laughs> find yeah. out this information. And on the way out the door, a uh, guy who works in his office says, uh, you know, listen, between you and me, Eli's way too busy to read that report. So um, rather than giving him that report, why don't you give it to me and I'll summarize it for oh. you and for him and I'll put a cover memo on it and we'll give it to him. Great. Thank you very much. And like sends me on my way. And he's just like, you know, big tall guy, six foot tall, you know, all like class and club membership and like, you know, poured into a shark skin suit. And he's like kind of leaning on me a little heavy, like as he's asking me this question. I mean, it was really gross. It was a lot of pressure. It was yeah. gross. It sounds gross. It was gross. And I was an intern. So I was like dead to rights. Like, what was I going to do? Like, I, I, there was nothing I could do. So I was like, okay. 
and I take another few more steps out the office and then a woman by the name of Janet V. Green pulls me aside and she's like, you know what's happening here, right? Um, yes. <laughs> no. no. She's like, he's going to steal your work. What are you doing? I was like, well, there's nothing I can do. I'm totally screwed. Um, and she's like, look, this is what you're going to do. You're going to do the report. You're going to give it to him. But you're also going to hold on to a second copy of it, you know, that you print out on your dot matrix printer. <laughs> and when Eli's walking out the door the next day, give him that too. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I did. I give the I give the report to the first person and then um, to the you know his chief of staff. And then I see Eli leaving, and I said, so your chief of staff's going to summarize this for you. But um, in the meantime, I thought you might want to look at the raw material. And I hand it to him. <laughs> nice. And then I go home and I like cry into my ramen soup that I'm going to get fired from the job that I don't even yet have, right? This was like clearly the assignment that was going to put me on the map. And I go home and I just basically, you know, cry and shake and oh my God, I have to go back to law school if this doesn't work out. And um, the next day I walk in the door and he sees me and he's like, hey, I read your report. It was really good. I'm going to have, I'm going to, I'm going to have you put on staff here. So the chief of staff pulls me in and he's like, I would have fired you if you did that in my corporate world. And I'm thinking to myself, I could have sued you if you, you know, did that. But he's like, I would have fired you. So I have to put you on staff. And I did some research about what the lowest possible salary I could hire you for, given. $717. So here, sign here. How, how much, sorry, how much was that? You, you skipped for a second there. How much, how much was it? Twenty-two thousand seven hundred and seventeen dollars. That was my, that was my first salary. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it bought a lot of ramen soup. But again, another a lesson in leadership, right? <laughs> you need a lot. Yeah, like, exactly. And, and and the life lessons I can imagine just carried on for life, as as uh, you know. Carried on for life, and you know, and and I, look, I learned a lot of things from that, right? Like, good work is good work. You should judge the work by the work. It's it is uh, it, success is. It is infinite. Everyone can have some. So, like, if I did well in the report, it wasn't going to take away from the chief of staff, right? Like, we could all be successful together. And I think, um, you know, Scott Stratton talks a lot about how all the elevator, you know, we build elevators to the top, right? Like, we can all, all be successful. rise together. And, and it just, it, it taught me a lot about the difference between scorekeepers and, you know, people who keep score and people who don't, right? You know, you, we all know those people who sort of sit in the corner and they're keeping score and they're watching and they're, 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 they're noticing what you're doing and they show up for you in the good times, right? And they're, they're there to like, oh, if you give me something, I'll give you something back. But I just believe, and I really feel this way in entrepreneurship, that the more, if you want to be successful, go out and help other people be successful, right? Like right. success in entrepreneurship is about showing up. It's about opportunities coming to you. It's about being able to blow through the doors when somebody with a little hinge helps open that. But you need to have other people. It's really lonely. Entrepreneurship is super lonely. And if you don't have other people who are there cheering you on and helping you and saying, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to this event and there's some people there that you, you know, maybe should meet, you don't get that from people who keep score. They're not abundance mentality thinkers. And so I, I that was a really real early, you know, small hinge moment for me that opened up a big door about thinking in terms of abundance rather than keeping score. Right. I, I, I often say, um, in, it, you know, if you have a friend who keeps score, if you have a colleague that keeps score, it's everyone loses. It just doesn't work. So I, I really, that really resonates with me. Sorry, Nick, go ahead. I'm curious, Laura. So after you were done at the White House and you, you knew it was... Did you uh, ever meet Bill Clinton a lot? Did you ever hang out with Bill Clinton? Yes. 
What was he like? Was he was he? One more hit. Yes. <laughs> was he? A, a, yeah. I mean, I met him a lot. I I I. I mean, like you know, actually, I like spent I mean, time in the Oval Office, you know, briefing him on events and things that we were doing, and yeah. So being Canadian, I you know we're we're obviously in a very different political climate in forever. It's just very different. Um, but like, what was it like? Was it was he was he what you when you saw him in that speech? On that little TV, was it the same person you met him in person, you know, one-on-one? So, you know, my opinion about Bill Clinton now, all these years later, is is fraught, right? Because it, it, he's not the guy that I signed up for. No. Um, however, he is one of the most intelligent individuals I've ever met in my life and a political genius. I mean, he, he's, he has a photographic memory for people and for for information. And so he can take disparate pieces of information that he got from random people and sew them together in a way that's like, oh, if you take this and you take this and you take this, here's your perfect solution. And Mm. he just, he's able to give dissertations on topics that he has not been briefed on, but he's just, you know, read about you know, in his free time, um, and and Hillary, frankly, is even smarter than him. The two of them, their brain power is is an, is, is incredible. But but I never believed, I never understood that you were born with charisma until I met him. You know, the, everything that you hear about him in terms of his charisma and his fire and his passion and his energy. It's really true. I mean, he's the kind of person, even now, you know, he's he's older, he's a vegan now, so he's all like skinny and sinewy. Um, but but <laughs> he just like, he just like, he's just like, you know, like a raisin. Um, but even he now he's like got this raisin. piercing blue eyes and he, he works a rope line and he'll shake your hand and he'll say, you know, Laura, it's good to see you. Um, and, you know, he'll ask questions about things. And, and then he moves on to the next person. You can still feel the heat of his eyes on you. Like he's just so he's so intensely present with people that it really does feel like you're the only person in the room uh, when he's there. Uh, and, and, and I've, I, I've not seen that with a lot of other people. Although people say Justin Trudeau is pretty charismatic too. So he I is, mean, and he looks pretty uh, good from this side of the border. I know really, there's some issues, but he's, you know. well, he's really good at yoga. And I think unfortunately <laughs> he cries a lot, <laughs> he cries a lot. And unfortunately I think, and I do not, again, I don't want to get into political conversation, but unfortunately I think Canada is moving, uh, a little right, and yes. as a lot of countries are, um, and they're kind of buying into that whole, you know, that negative situation that you have right now in America. And we're, we're as Canadians, as Nick and I, we're very concerned about that. So anyway, another story for another day. Uh, yeah. So uh, coming into your like, you, you know, you're, you're you're leaving your career from the White House, and and you're you're entering your entrepreneurial journey. Can you talk a little bit about what was next after the White House, Laura? I know you have an amazing, you know, entrepreneurial uh, career. So let's talk about that and, and, and then the, like the, uh, the realm that you got into and, and what, you, what you did for the next 15, 20 years of your life. Yeah, so um, I know it's funny that it's such, it's such ancient history. So uh, when I, in 1995, I went to Eli and I said, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go back out of the campaign trail and I'm, let's, get, let's get Bill reelected. And he said, in the way that only a mentor can really say, uh, well, you're kind of too uh, you're kind of too old to get back on a campaign bus and eat cold pizza and sleep on high school gymnasium floors, and you're kind of too young to be the domestic policy advisor. So go talk to my friend Arnie Miller. He runs Isaacson Miller, one of the largest search firms in the country that does specifically nonprofit work. You'll go work at a nonprofit. You'll hide out for four years, and then you'll come back and do something big on the Gore campaign. And I was like, awesome, sounds mm-hmm. good. So I sat down with Arnie, and within five minutes of sitting down with him, I realized that his office was in Boston. 
Now, the guy that I was dating at this point, who, by the way, did not drive an IROXY, <laughs> a much better guy, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, was about to move to Boston. And I was like, you know, I could come work for you. And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. And I said, terrific. What do you do? <laughs> what's, doing? what's the job? And so I became a headhunter, which, um, by the way, when you're 25 years old and you have really no ostensible skills but a Rolodex that could choke a horse, yeah. becoming a, a headhunter uh, for mission-driven organizations is a pretty good gig. So I went to go work with him. I worked for him for four years. I learned really from the best and the brightest in the business how to do this work exceptionally well. I married that guy. Um, so <laughs> 23 years later, all his work out So he's out a way well. step up um, from the Iraq, and, way uh, step up. And, and then I had this moment of rage, this moment of realization that I actually wasn't part of the solution. I thought I was there to help organizations do better and change the world save the whales, cure cancer, feed the hungry, everything, by helping them put the right person in the right position, using that lever of talent as the way to make a change. And what I realized was that even though I thought I was on the same side of the table as my clients, I was really on the opposite side of the table. I was on the side of the table with my boss and the profit and loss statement of our company sort of sat in between us. So I thought I was over there and they looked at me and realized that I actually was you know, my, my responsibility was profit first, then their mission was second. And once I came to that realization, um, once I realized I was part of the problem, I couldn't live with that any longer, you know, like I, it just, it, it didn't sit with me. And so I started to do some research about why search firms are, why they operate the way they operate. Why do they charge one third first year's cash compensation? And what I came to find out was that it is, completely arbitrary. There was no reason whatsoever, except that was just how it had been done in the for-profit world. That was just the way it was. And I, I realized that there was a better way to do it. There was a faster and smarter way with more profit for us and more, more and, and less fee for the client and more flexibility personally. I mean, there was just a way to do it with more authenticity and more integrity than the way that it was being done at that firm. So I presented that to my boss and he basically said, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, but we're gonna do it my way, so either you can stay and do it my way, or you're welcome to go. So you left. So I went. <laughs> and I started my own company, um, which by the way, I was like 11 months pregnant at the time, oh, so wow. note to your entrepreneurs <laughs> that are listening, don't start a company when you're 11 months pregnant with your first child. That's a really hard thing to do. Um, but that's what I did. So I walked out. I really had not much of an idea of if it was going to be successful, but I knew that there was a better way to do it. Fast forward, you know, about six weeks later, I gave birth. I was sitting at my kitchen table and the phone rings and it's somebody that I knew back from my White House days. And she was like, so, um, ew, I heard you had a baby. Is that true? <laughs> And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, great, I guess. But uh, the CEO of my organization just resigned and uh, we need one. Are you still doing search? And I was like, um, sure. <laughs> yeah, I got some time between now. She's like, great, send me a contract. So I opened up my laptop and I Googled how to write a contract. <laughs> yeah. And my business was born, Perfect. which is why uh, the search firm I founded is called Nonprofit Professional Advisor. Oh, wow. Catchy. That's quite the beautiful uh, branding name, Catchy. right? Like, <laughs> so I, I'm curious before. Not so good. Yeah. I, I'm curious. So was there, you, you talked about like 
before we, I, I know I'm trying to be cognizant of your time, but <clears throat> was there a moment, Laura, that you were like, that you had, like you went to, I know you went to your boss and said like, all right, I, there's a way to do this that's better. But was there a moment during that journey that you're like, you know what, this isn't for me. I need to go out and I need to start my entrepreneurial journey on my own. No, no, I never wanted to be the person in the spotlight. Um, once I, once I, once I walked into that campaign office in Gainesville, Florida, and I saw Bill Clinton on that little TV, I was like, oh, I don't have to be the solution. I can be part of the solution, right? right. If, I, if I think about what the solution needs as opposed to what my ego needs, I can actually be in the right seat so that the solution moves forward in the right way. From that moment on, I never really wanted to be in the spotlight. I had no interest. I really was an accidental CEO. And now I make my living, you know, on TV and speaking on stages. And it's hilarious because it's so not the place that I would have put myself. But I understand that at this moment in time, I am the vehicle for this message. And it makes a lot of sense for me to do it. But it's not demanded by my ego. It's 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 demanded by the burden of potential that I feel that this message has. So, you know, I actually ran into Eli Siegel a few years after I founded my company and he was always an entrepreneur. He was he he ran a lot of political campaigns, but he was a businessman first and foremost. And he was like, oh he's like, it's amazing to see what you've done. Didn't did you always know you're an entrepreneur? And I said, No. And he's like, well I always did. Oh, and wow. I remember thinking at that moment Gee, I wish he would have told me. <laughs> yeah, would have, would have saved and me a lot of heartache. Now I look back on it and I think, I wonder if it's just because I was unmanageable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, especially when a mentor says that to you, right? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I saw this in you before you did, and you're just, and that's probably one of the reasons why he's your he's your mentor. So you have this like, you know, 15 year career where you're 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 working this company. You decide that you're 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 done. Like after the moment where they said, you know, we need to we need to get a CEO. You Google how to get a con like you know the contracts and things like that. You got this great brand. You you start it. You work it. 15 years. You sell it. You're in the speaking career and you write this wonderful book. Talk to us a little bit about Limitless and how it came to be. So um, I mean, what really happened over the course of the 20 years of doing executive search is that I saw. I mean, I talked to thousands of leaders of people that were in the C-suite that were that were you know up and comers that were amazing, and I talked to them because they were successful, right? My clients hired me to go out there and find them successful people to come in and become part of their organization. So I was talking to them because they were successful, but they were talking to me because they were unhappy. They weren't happy where they were, or they would not be sitting in a headhunter's office learning about a new job. And I started really sort of puzzling over this question about, well, what if success doesn't equal happiness? And I started thinking about my own career as well and all the changes that I made throughout my my own life where I had done all the right things. I filled in all the check boxes. I, I got all the gold stars and I, I was moving my way down the path to everybody else's version of everyone else's uh, definition of su success. Until one day I woke up and I realized, well, that's, that's not working for me, right? And at each point along the way, I had these sort of little mini moments where I was being limited by everybody else's ambitions, by their anxieties, by their their dreams, their hopes, their worries, their fears, good or bad, whatever it was, but I was being put in that box. And so um, the idea behind the book Limitless really comes from the notion that rather than leaning in Rather than doing all the things, being all the things to all the people all the time, what if we could figure out what really mattered to us, how we really define success, and to lean into that, to go after that with everything we have. And so for some people, it's going to be lots and lots of money. For some people, it's going to be lots and lots of flexibility. For some people, it's lots and lots of impact. You know, everybody has different 
ideas of success at different ages and at different life stages. And so the book really came from this, this question of what if success doesn't equal happiness? Love that. That's great. I, what do you, what do you say? Um, what do you say to someone who says, I, I can't, I can't just choose what I want to do. I, I have no, I don't have that freedom to just to choose my path. I think we all have a freedom to choose some part of our path, and it may be that it's not right now at this age and this life stage, but I think we all have an opportunity. Look, I think there are constraints that are real, right? If you have, you know, sick parents or you've got a lot to get, but I think a lot of the constraints that we feel are perceived and not necessarily real, and some of them may feel more real because they've been beaten into our head by so many naysayers along the way who have told us that we can't do things or that we shouldn't do things or God forbid, what if, what if we, what if we fail? So for those who actually have real constraints, what I would say is, and I go to my 17 year old son who, who plays video games um, from time to time and um, taught me the lesson about the side quest, right? Do you guys play video games? Do you have kids who play video games? You know, side quest is. I've heard of it. I've never played it. Okay. So, if your main quest is that you want to go to the castle and slay the dragon and save the princess, what if you can't do that yet because it's a two-player game and your friend who you want to play with hasn't logged on because he's still doing the dishes? What can you do? Do you just sit there? You could, or you could do a side quest. And a side quest is, well, if I eventually want to go to the castle and slay the dragon and slay the princess, what am I going to need? I'm going to need a horse. I'm going to need some potions. I'm going to need a sword. So what can I do now? I can tend my wheat. I can till my crops. I can take right. them to the market. I can do all these things to get some money that I can then sell to buy a horse, buy a sword, buy some potions, so that when my friend logs on and we're ready to go, we can jump on the horse, go to the castle, slay the dragon, and save the princess. So for people that are like, I don't really have a choice right now, I can't really do that, I think there are lots of things that we can do. You can listen to podcasts like this, you can attend events like Epic, you can um, listen to TED Talks, you can read books, There are you can have informational interviews, you can go out to lunch with a friend and find out stories about what, find out what they're doing. So I think there are all sorts of things that we can do right now which will help us to understand that um, we do have more choice and that we can um, see the nuance in some of the choices that we have so that when we actually are ready to get on the horse, go to the castle, we can slay the dragon and save the princess. You might say the opportunities are perhaps limitless. Limitless. You might say that. Um, we've got to wrap this up because we, we, don't, we, don't, we, we all have to go our own ways and do our own things. Um, we're excited to say that uh, next year in May of 2020, um, you're going to come to um, the home of the NBA champion, uh, Toronto Raptors, uh, and uh, join us at Epic 2020. What are you going to share with the, uh, the community at Epic 2020? What's the kind of like, what are they going to walk away with? Well, so what I'm going to do um, at Epic 2020 is I'm going to help the community understand why we've gotten purpose wrong, why we're feeling limitless, why success hasn't brought us happiness and to really understand where we where like where we tripped up along the way so that each of us individually can walk away understanding how we personally define success through a framework of what I call consonants and consonants really is that thing that I've come to learn in the thousands of, of leaders that I've interviewed is the thing that keeps them not just um, going to work every day but engaged and happy and excited about that work and consonants is that feeling of 
of, of frictionless belonging, of alignment, of flow. So that when the, the what you do matches the who you are. Right. You know those moments when you're working on something that you really love and you're bringing the very best of yourself to it and you're being rewarded for it in a way that it's personally meaningful to you? That's consonance. That's love when it. you're limitless. And in my um, session at Epic, we're going to talk about how each person individually can create their own roadmap to get to that place themselves. The one question I want to ask you, I always like to ask our guests is, if you go back to that ninth grade or 12th grade, you choose, kid, um, with your life knowledge now, what would you, what would you share with that person? It, briefly, what would, you, what would the one or two things you would share with that person? That Laura I at 14. I would say it's all going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. It'll, I'd say it's all going to be okay. And I would probably share my favorite quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, which is, uh, we would worry a lot less about what other people thought about us if we understood how little they did. Wow, yeah, that's a great so quote. True. Yeah, no, it's a, I love that quote. Um, Laura, thank you very, very much. It was an honor. Thank you. I'm so excited to, to be on the show, and I'm super excited to come to Toronto next year. How do people get a hold of you? How do they find you on the internets and the interwebs? Where do they get a hold of you? So all my good friends call me LGO. Yes. Uh, so I am at HeyLGO on all the socials and HeyLGO.com. Perfect. And by the way, I watched your episode of uh, Good Morning America, um, and it it was fantastic. You really, the crowd was really into what you were saying, and they were nodding and they were agreeing. So you really touched a nerve with Limitless and and your whole message. So congratulations. Thank you so much. It was funny because right before we went on the show, the producer asked uh, Amy Roback to ask the crowd if they've ever made decisions based on other people's definitions of success. Of them from that pan the producer said that's really risky you know it's live national television and i was like trust, trust me, me. Yeah. <laughs> i know this <laughs> nice, and they all so, said this is what we'll talk about and they all they all raised their hands it was amazing so they you're on to something and then as soon as i said and who feels successful every hand went down yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> you've, you've you've really touched on a nerve so we're excited for um we're excited for next may i'll see you are you coming in september to our event that we're gonna all hang out i at? am indeed yes so I'll we'll see you in there. September. Nick and I will be there. Um, and thanks again, Laura, from all of us up here in Canada and the Great White North. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Go Raptors. Go Raptors. All right. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Uh, well, Nick, I think you'll agree that was, uh, as I would say, stupendous. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think our listeners will agree too that uh, Laura is a wealth of knowledge and has an amazing uh, entrepreneurial spirit, entrepreneurial background, and you know, showed our uh, or, or shared with our listeners some really great, uh, really great ideals on, on how to be successful in entrepreneurship. I think one of the things I took away, the thing I took away, I'd, I'd, I'd reiterate to our listeners, is when I asked that tough question of what do you about, what do you say to people who think they just they can't be limitless, they, they don't have the ability or the resources or whatever, or they're not in the situation. And she made a great point about like, you know, there are Ted talks, there are events, there are books, there are, there are websites, there are so many things you can re you know, access for little to no, no money that can actually, you can help find you that way to, or that path to become limitless, to find the path you want to be on. Yeah. I mean, I, I and, and I think that like I was along the same lines. I think what I took away from Laura is, is her like 
you know, she's got such perseverance, right? And and she had such this amazing past. She knew what she wanted to do. She she was into the White House, in the White mm -hmm. House, and she did some great yeah, work. Great there. stories about that too. Yeah, right? great stories about that. And then decided at a young age that she needed to, you know, she was going to move on. And and then realized after running a successful business, which is hard to walk away from, I can only imagine. Um, a really successful business for 15, 20 years decided I need to do something different because I want to be on the same side of the yeah. table of the clients that I was helping. And I think there's something to be said about that. And, and uh, so Laura provided us some with us and, and our listeners with some amazing insight. Yeah, she's a super duper person and we're excited to have her. Um, <laughs> super duper person. Super duper person. So Heard it here, folks. Super duper. We're bringing it back. You know what? My mom would actually often say that someone was super duper. So please don't make fun of my mom. I'm not making fun of your mom. I'm making fun of you. Your mom's 80. I won't make fun of her. My mom is upset now that you just said that, and luckily she does not listen to this podcast because she doesn't know what podcasts are. Is she in the room? No, she's not. In and the how'd room. she hear me? No, but I'm glad she's not going to hear you. Oh, I'm, saying. Right. I'm glad. And I'm glad that we interviewed Laura Gasser today. I Bye. am, and we're pumped that she'll be at Epic 2020. If you don't know what that is, go to theepiccommunity.com. Um, and please always don't forget to subscribe and rate and just find us where share, uh, share, share. Find us where iTunes are born, man. Where iTunes are born. <laughs> What does that mean? If you we're, can use Super Duper, I can use iTunes or Born, right, Mike? It doesn't make any sense, though. iTunes are not Born. Anyway, we're podcasts or listen to. We're on all the platforms. Until next time, I'm Stu Saunders. I'm Nick Foley. And we are the authentic, yeah, authentic, I can't even say it. We're the authentic entrepreneurs, and we're out. Bye, everybody. See you next week.